Welcome to Black and Green Podcast, episode number 12. I am your host, Kevin Tucker, and it is about to be September 6th, 2018. So let's go ahead and get started with some house cleaning stuff. First off, Black and Green Podcast is available on uh, Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. Uh, and also, everything's on archive. If you're curious about this episode or past episodes, uh, you can go to blackandgreenreview.org. And there's a tab for podcasts that has all the episodes there linked with archive. Uh, I do have some on uh, iTunes, things like that, but my uh, bandwidth for the free stuff is pretty limited. So I just try to rotate those episodes. So if you're hearing this on iTunes or something and you were curious about more, uh, in the meantime, the best way to do it is to go on blackandgreenview.org, click on the podcast tab, and then go through the back episodes. Uh, so uh, Black and Green Review. Uh, our sixth episode, or sixth issue is the deadline has passed technically and we are working on it. We'll probably be spending the next couple months wrapping it up and then getting it to print and everything like that. Uh, there's going to be more information at blackandgreenreview.org as well, uh, as well as pre-order information as soon as that comes up. I'll give more updates on that as this goes, but if you don't listen to John Zerzan's weekly call-in radio show, Anarchy Radio, uh, and you can go to johnzerzen.net and get the links for the episodes, the current episodes and past episodes, things like that. Uh, he's been doing a bunch of readings from things that are going to be in there uh, and engagement with the material. So if you listen to this, you should be listening to John's show as well. I'm a regular caller. Uh, so check that out. Uh, if I've talked to you about something that you're working on, you still have some time to finish it up. And there's still a lot of stuff that's in the works and going to be finished up as well. So I'm excited about that, but it is expensive to do. Books are extremely expensive. Books are extremely expensive in general and doing the distribution and everything like that is really complicated. So if you like this podcast, if you like what we are doing, uh, if you like what Black and Green Press has to offer, and you can go to blackandgreenpress.org uh, for more of that or the, the books that I've written, edited, and taken part in. Uh, there's a lot of ways you can help support it. Uh, and at the blackgreenreview.org podcast tab, there's a Patreon link, which I'm extremely grateful for people who have donated there. It's a, a huge help. Uh, and there's also a PayPal link because unfortunately these things cost money. Hating money costs money to tell people about it. It's a funny situation like that, but the world is a weird place right now. Uh, and that's how it works. So, uh, Picking up the books, talking about the books, spreading news about the books. If you go on Amazon and you want to review any of them uh, or any any other place, Goodreads, whatever else. Um, if you have info shops, bookstores, distros, things that you would like to see carry the books, you can also tell them to get in touch with us. We like to make it very easy for people to get the books. So whatever we can do to spread the word uh, is much appreciated and I'm eternally thankful. Uh, so if you can do any of that, please do. And I thank you. And if you can help support the podcast and the projects financially, big thank you. But the biggest thing is engaging, talking, reaching out to us. And I'm again, thankful to everybody who has and continues to send feedback and input and things like that. Um, and I do have a new way of doing it. So we're going to give this a shot. Let's see how this goes. Um, but I have it so that there's a phone number you can call 
and I should be able to download the voicemails and kind of play it back and then respond to your questions. So if there's something you're dying to get out there uh, or something you just want to say, something you want to get on there, give it a shot. Uh, the phone number is 573-575-8752. Again, that is 573-575-8752. I will give it one more time and that is it for this episode. 573-575-8752. And did not come up with a good word for that, but my options were limited. I know everybody wanted me to do 573-eat-shit, 573-anti-sieve. I apologize. I have lit you down, but I didn't have any options. And uh, I don't even know if this will work, but we're going to try it anyway. So there's that. Uh, in terms of everything else, uh, I did get some suggestions for topics that people would like to get covered. Uh, just a couple of them. One being about veganism. Uh, will I get into it much? I don't know. Uh, I've kind of said a lot that I needed to say about that in an essay I wrote for Species Trader number 4, which came out in 2005. And it's also in my first collection of essays for Wildness and Anarchy called Open Cages, Closed Mind, Closed Minds, uh, Veganism as Ultra Domestication. And again, for those who haven't read it, those who aren't aware, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not here to tell people what to eat. I have my own opinions on the matter. I have my own very rigid opinions on the matter. Um, I'm not a fan of veganism. Uh, that is for damn sure. Uh, I advocate for hunting and gathering. It's kind of contrary. But, you know, I mean, I, I think a lot of the stuff comes down to veganism or vegan seeing it as like, uh, if you're talking about eating meat, you're talking about eating McDonald's, which is lazy and boring. But, you know, I know a lot of vegans that I like a lot and I, you know, separate the ideology from the people who just eat the diet. Uh, and I get why people go vegan. Uh, I'm not a Lear key type who's going to say that you're just a angry person with a body dysmorphia or something like that. Um, there's a lot of good reasons people go vegan and under a lot of scrutiny, they don't necessarily hold up unless you see it as the only option being vegan or McDonald's. But these days you can be vegan and eat McDonald's. So there's that. Will I get into it as a topic? I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe in time. Um, if you have not gotten black and green interview number five, uh, there's an interview with Nora Gedgados who had written primal body, primal mind, which is an excellent book. And that interview is really good. Um, she's somebody I really enjoy and admire. Uh, and, uh, I would recommend her book if you're curious for more. Um, and maybe at some point we'll talk to her on the podcast, not an impossibility. Uh, origins of patriarchy is another subject. And that is a subject in the book I'm currently working on called Of Gods and Country, The or, uh, Domestication of the World. Uh, and I've explained this a little bit more, but I'll explain it again because I'm going to do a pretty extensive reading from the book in progress right now, uh, or on this episode, I should say. And the the book is, is interspersing two narratives. And the one narrative is missionaries as agents of conquest and colonization, uh, and then the other the other narrative is about the origins of religion, the origins of patriarchy, and the origins of nationalism. Uh, so it's it's looking at how domestication makes these things possible. But then, you know, we're looking at minutia when you're talking about the difference between a nomadic hunter gatherer or a uh, 
sedentary hunter-gatherer, hunter-collector, or a horticulturalist, generally a much more minimal, much more small-scale difference in the way that they act and perceive the world, even if it has massive implications and things that become entirely different whenever agriculture becomes a, a part of the process. Um, so, you know, by looking at the small scale, and this is, this is true for all my work. This is the underlying basis, pretty much all my work. When you look at these small details and you understand how these cycles work and how these processes work, then you can start to understand it more and more as you look at these bigger circumstances and the bigger changes. Domestication always works the same way. We are social animals. We're human beings. We are, you know, based on hunter-gatherers. That's how we've evolved for hundreds of thousands as homo sapiens, hundreds of thousands of years as homo sapiens and going back millions of years um, just as a social animal uh, built around small bands of hunter-gathering societies. So, you know, there's there's more that's going to be about this in Species Trader. I'm sorry, not Species Trader. Uh, Black and Green Interview number six uh, as well. I have used the term primal anarchy for, I don't know, 16, 17 years, uh, increasingly using that term instead of uh, anarcho-primitivism, even though it's, it's the same thing. Uh, but I think it's important to focus on that term, to focus or to use that term, I should say, because, you know, this isn't just like a critique to say, it's like, well, where did things start and go? Because hunting and gathering is our nature, because being a social animal is our nature. We have so much similarity with other social animals. Uh, you know, you have to understand the domestication process to understand how it is we are willing to basically kind of go along with all this shit. And the same thing is true for a horticultural society as it is as a, an agrarian industrial society or a post-industrial monolithic globalized civilization. Uh, but the scale is massively different. The processes are and the patterns are the same, but they are just ramped up infinitely. Um, so it's not about just like this point where, okay, the switch was hit and then we stopped being human and we started being civilized and, or something like that. It's really just about understanding what is it that drives us that makes it possible for domesticators, makes it possible for programmers and capitalists and civilizers in any kind of form to be able to disrupt, alter, and redirect who it is we are and what we need and how does this function. And that's always kind of an insane thing. And that's something with this, this book in particular that hits really hard because, you know, even in a, a warring or horticultural society, there's still most of the time that things are functioning. When you look at some of the, the patterns of warfare amongst horticulturalists, like uh, a war cycle can take 10 years. And during that 10 years, you'll have maybe one or two battlefield wars, uh, which could last a day or three. Um, and you'll have a raid here and there. Uh, and, you know, all these things intensify with colonization. All these things intensify after contact. And whenever you toss in big time, whenever you toss in weapons like machetes and guns, uh, but just the the bare existence or the bare presence of something like steel tools in general makes a massive difference. But you know, there's there's from a distance you can see a lot more of these changes, and you can see how they pattern in with the society and how they feed into a patriarchal kind of structure, and how they feed into uh, resituating 
even even the way that people relate within a society or with the way those people relate to the to the world at large but it is much smaller much infinitely smaller than the difference in impact between our society and these societies and when you contrast that that narrative and that story with the brute reality of missionaries and as colonizers and alongside colonizers um it's really fucking harsh uh and again i've mentioned it before you know this is this book is something that i've talked about a lot more publicly than i would any other thing uh and normally even something like the fact that i've I've read on the last episode i read a little bit from it in this episode i'm going to read quite a bit more from it uh i don't really share things from works in progress but you know it's uh, a lot to process. Uh, there's a there's a lot of horrible shit that is in this, and a lot of things that need to be brought to light, need to be reminded of. Um, but it's it's fucking hard. I mean, you see the beauty that exists in this world, and you see the amazingness that happens in the societies, and you you know, you, of course, you get you get shit like Steven Pinker uh, and all these other fucking scumbags who want to just sit there and talk shit and say it's like, oh, well, you know, civilization has actually made life better. Um, And trying to use uh, the anthropology and things like that to uh, back all that up. And, you know, it's it's a massive failure. And, I mean, there's stuff like uh, our Brian Ferguson, who's an anthropologist that I really respect. Uh, He focuses on warfare, which is a huge interest of mine. Um, and a huge area of study of mine. Uh, and you can look at a book called Yanami Warfare, uh, which is a book he wrote in response to Napoleon Chagnon. And then there's another book called Darkness in El Dorado, which is a little more pop version of that. Um, and Darkness in El Dorado is harsh on uh, Chagnon and another anthropologist, Lizo, rightfully so. Um, but Ferguson's book also includes the missionaries and the contact of the missionaries. Um, but Napoleon Chagnon uh, and James Neal, his partner, were both funded by and supported by the Atomic Energy Commission, and they had created situations where warfare amongst the Anami had increased massively, huge impacts, huge increases to the point where it was, it was genocidal. Um, and Ferguson really just kind of cuts through the shit and it can kind of show it's like these are the things this is the cultural history here this is how this happened this is how this came to be this is the role that Chagnon had taken within it uh and it's it's fucked um you know for being an anthropologist he's he's got some heavy stuff and one of his earlier essays is called uh the blood of leviathan and it's really fucking good uh but he's got another essay and it's a another anthropologist Douglas Fry uh, he's written some really good stuff, uh, and um, I'm blanking on the names immediately. Uh, but he has an anthology, uh, and that one has uh, an essay by Brian Ferguson, which is also available online, and it's about Stinker or Pinker's List, and the book is called War, Peace, and Human Nature. But in it, it's got. Uh, an essay from Ferguson that I like I said I think is available online uh, called Pinker's List, and it's just going through and showing that this data that Ferg or that Pinker is trying to use to show that 
life before civilization was more violent was based on colonial era contact with indigenous societies, mostly horticulturalists and also hunter gatherers. And this is an old trick. I mean, this is a really fucked up thing um, to be trying to treat some of these societies at the time that they were contacted or studied. Most of which was from, you know, let's say the early 1900s, but mostly 1940, 1950, 1960 and on uh, some of these societies not being contacted until the 1960s or later uh, in a, in a lasting and profound way, not, not counting like Jesuits coming through and just being fucking assholes. Uh, but you know, looking at how things have changed because of that and looking at saying that, Oh, you know, while we found a society that's conducting itself in constant state of warfare, uh, mysteriously after we showed up and started injecting people with shit, started giving people machetes and guns, uh, and things like that, all the stuff that comes with colonization from the start, uh, it's a really kind of asinine thing that we do much, much more than we want to. But the whole point of it is that, you know, Chagnon is a sociobiologist. He wanted to say that the nature of human nature is to be this Hobbesian warring asshole, this totally Machiavellian piece of shit. That's, that's what he wants everyone to believe because within civilization for all of Pinker's fanfare and all the bullshit Pinker wants to say, you know, the whole idea is that you need to subjugate human nature so that we can get along and be peaceful and that we're becoming more peaceful, which is again, patently absurd. It's the most absurd thing that you could possibly say is to say that the way we exist now is more peaceful than anything else. And there's so much evidence to the contrary. Douglas Fry, again, uh, his, his, the mainstream kind of book that he wrote was called beyond war, the human potential for peace, which is actually a really good book. He is a pacifist. I am not, um, but his work is, is awesome. Um, and I, I strongly recommend it. And if you're looking at any of this Pinker stuff, if you're having to argue with people who want to believe the shit, the Pinker says or the shit that any of the sociobiologists say, and amongst ethology, amongst anybody who's studying animal nature, uh, they tend to go to the sociobiologist stuff and this kind of fantastical nature as a state of warfare kind of shit. Uh, so this is a good way of debunking it. And also our Brian Ferguson has also been working on a book to refute a lot of the claims that Jane Goodall has made about the chimps in Gombe, um, which, you know, it's, it's been kind of a famous example, uh, people going to primatology to say it's like, because, uh, a lot of the great apes, apes and primates and things like that are, are technically more in our lineage that we have more in common with them than any other social animal. So we can kind of base our ideas on that. People go to Bonobos for sex. They go to apes for war. Um, and the problem is, is that, you know, whenever you look at good all stuff and I've written about this as well and, and other people have as well, uh, she, she removes herself from the context. Just like, Oh, we set up the station. We started feeding some, uh, and boom, all of a sudden they were, were able to see warfare. And it's like, well, the correlation between that and the Anami or almost any of these other cases is one-to-one. I mean, this is exactly what happens is you set up this site, this situation, this dynamic. All of a sudden you have warfare. You can't just be like, oh, look, they have warfare and now we get to see it. It's like, no, you put a fucking resource in there and you're negating the reality of what Gombe is like, what what Africa is like at the time. You're talking about constant civil wars. You're talking about violence. You're talking about 
insane degrees of violence against wild everything. Uh, both these animals are refugees from, you know, the, the consequence of these wars and the consequence of, of human encro- encroachment and uh, encapsulation. And uh, it's just, it's hard to think about it. It's hard to read it. And I think that I've mentioned it a number of times before, but Gabe Bradshaw, I love her. I love her work. It is amazing. Carnivore Minds is, is best book I think came out last year. The best book that came out last year, whatever year it came out, that's the best book of that year. If it wasn't 2016, if it wasn't 2017, fuck it. Still the best book. Um, you should read it. And there's an interview with Gay in number five. And I am sure we will be talking to her on the podcast. She's a wonderful person. Um, but she studied in that book, in her book, Elephants on the Edge, the consequences of PTSD amongst wild animal populations. Naturally, along the lines of what Ferguson is talking about and completely refuting uh, the kind of claims that Pinker or Chagnon would make. To say it's like you can't judge these animals and as by their you know, you can't stick an animal in a cage and then be like, oh, well, what they do in the cage is indicative of what they would do in a, in a wild and free community. It's just completely insane. Um, but it feeds our narrative. We feel better about ourselves. We feel better about the things we do. We don't have to think about the destruction of the earth. We don't have to think about the consequences of our lives. If the alternative was just more warfare or just not being as enlightened or whatever. So, I recommend those books. Uh, again, themes that will be going on throughout, uh, and also themes that are central to of God's and country. Um, and, and you know, it's it's hard to do. And it's also in my book, Gathered Remains, that just came out. Uh, you can go to blackandgreenreview.org uh, and pick it up there if you have not. Uh, but it's it's it can be hard to articulate it can be hard to really digest how fucked up things have gotten and and really kind of to take a deep look in that mirror and and see what the consequences of our lives are like and and how recent a lot of these changes and and encroachments have been in the lives of so much uh and increasingly detrimental and there's there's more to be said about that naturally um, there's more I've said about that in the podcast and, uh, my writing, everything else. Uh, and I'm sure there'll be much more to be said about it in future episodes of this. So I will do my best not to go off the deep end of that right now. Um, so yeah, uh, check out those books, check out gathered remains and stay tuned for a little bit more of gods and country, but there's uh one more thing I want to get to beforehand so a bit of a follow-up here um episode eight that i did back in may it was a two-parter episode um and it's an episode that i've gotten the most feedback on of any so far and i think for good reason um more of which i I will get into in a second i'm not saying stop and listen to that one first and come back to this but after you finish this consider it something I would can I would recommend listening to if you, you know, like the podcast, which you're listening so far. So uh, in that episode, I kicked off talking about the death of an ayahuasca shaman um, and a lot to say on that subject, and it's never going to be over. It's never going to be done. And as hipster shit continues to 
push further and further into these realms of just uh, being cultural vultural, cultural vultures and, and cultural parasites and trying to co-opt anything and turn anything into a superfood or whatever kind of hip shit that's going on. Um, it, it is a, a smash in the face to the indigenous societies that still do exist in their cultures and tra- practices and traditions. Uh, and it's drives me insane that it even needs to be said, but I keep seeing shit where people think they're like, Oh, I, I think I'm secretly a shaman or I'm, you know, microdosing, uh, all the time and I'm having these visions, I, you know, maybe I'm a shaman. I feel this connection with the earth. It's like, you're not a fucking shaman. I, I don't understand how shit comes up. A shaman is a specific cultural phenomena. It is not universal. Healing is universal. Every society has healers. And I would argue that that doesn't just include or is limited to human societies, but within human societies, that is a thing. A shaman is a specialist arises with most mostly arises with domestication or with um forced settlements and things like that but the idea that somebody thinks that they're secretly a shaman is enraging um these things take practice these things take time it's not a a simple situation it's not a feel-good thing uh it's not as i would say it's, it's not a healer's position and I think certain people do have more of some kind of like energy or vibe or just personality that lends itself towards healing. Um, and I, I know a number of people who are like that and I'm exceptionally thankful that I know them and they also have helped me make me more aware about some of the, a lot of things I've talked about, about community and healing and, and dealing with uh, trauma, dealing with domestication, dealing with a lack of community and a lack of uh groundedness in general uh but that doesn't make you a shaman you don't you know it it, i think a way i had argued with one of these people was you know if you've read a lot of books about heart surgery it doesn't make you a heart surgeon um there's there's a process there's the thing this is a specific cultural thing if you do not come from these cultures you don't get the fucking right to take that aspect than to try and claim it and make it your own. And this, this is an old thing. I mean, the Castaneda was pivotal in all this shit. Uh, and I almost am surprised all the time that hipsters don't seem to have realized this has happened before, uh, as they're going on their spirit quests and microdosing adventures or whatever. Um, but you know, this is, this is a common theme and it's, it's sad, uh, that it is, but you know, you can't, just kind of jump ahead down the process. And so the that uh, the premise of that episode, and this is something that's going to come up in Black and Green Review number six, is that, you know, this dude, I think he was Canadian, went uh, and found an ayahuasca shaman, took a, a, a trip to take trips, uh, and it was this whole guided guru kind of bullshit thing. Uh, it went off the deep end. I mean, cause ayahuasca is not a minor thing. Ayahuasca can fuck you up like any kind of hallucinogen. It can do that. Um, and it's not that people won't think, find things that are true or, you know, shortcuts or whatever. It's not that none of that stuff matters, but if you're just going to fly out from fucking Vancouver, Ontario or some shit and think that you're going to have this whole adventure and then be grounded and go on with your life and, by the way, most of the people who do this shit are CEOs and corporate assholes. Um, so they would just want to do it and feel good about 
themselves while they're fucking assholes for the rest of their lives. And that's not everybody. And uh, this guy in particular thought he was going to be able to learn all these shaman songs and learn all these shaman practices so he could take ayahuasca and help people overcome uh, heroin and opiate addiction. So it sounds really good. And that's the thing with all this stuff. It's it's meant to sound good. It's meant to find aspects of wildness and find aspects of community and find aspects of being grounded in the world. But you, you can't half-ass it this way. You can't find a shortcut. You can't, you know, just skip go and collect $200 in spiritual coins and think that you've figured it out. There's a history to all these things. There's a, a society and a, a world behind all these practices, behind all these you know, things that are being called as sold as superfoods. Um, and you don't have, you're not entitled by the nature of being a human, being able to buy these things or being able to pay for a trip to fly down and stay in a, you know, a hotel or stay in some Airbnb and then go take your trips and go learn these things and then come back and be enlightened. Um, that's some, that's some straight up fucking colonial bullshit. I mean, it's tourism, um, in its worst form. Uh, and it, because it makes you feel good about the world that we're in and the world that you're able to go fly to these places and do these things while universally these societies are all indigenous societies are under threat and under direct target of civilization itself. So, you know, it sounds good. And the way that people sell this stuff, it sounds really fucking good. But it is a colonial encounter. And the fact that this guy um, flew down and took this ayahuasca shit and thought that the shaman was withholding from him something he could use to, to save the people or whatever, uh, he killed her. And then in retaliation, he was killed himself. Uh, and it's a, it's a really fucking sad story. But it is an old story. This is a constant story. This is what happens with colonization. This is what happens in the fucking frontier. This is the history of civilization and expansionism is these kinds of assholes, just anybody feeling entitled to what anybody else has because of religion, because of whatever kind of dictates they think they have, whatever virtues they think they have, or it just makes them feel like this is my thing and I'm going to take it. And boom, there you have it. So, I guess you could say in a, a short form that I am against that stuff. It's a radical stance, I'm sure. Um, but there there are bigger issues. So in the, the second half of that episode, I go on about Goyaki Brander Vermonte. Uh, and so this is a big theme for me. And I mean, it's not that the, the ayahuasca thing isn't. Uh, in fact, I talk about it a good bit in my essay, Hooked on a Feeling, which is in Black and Green Review number three and also Gathered Remains, my newer book. Um, both of which I think you know you should read. Uh, but these these are massive topics, but really, um, this Goyaki brand or Mate thing is a real fucking thorn in my side. Uh, and I've been meaning to follow up on this uh, because I've had a lot of people approach me or talk to me about it afterwards, saying like I I didn't even know I didn't know people were boycotting Goyaki brand or Mate. Um, and the, the basic premise of it, just to, to cover that, is that the name Goyaki is, is uh, a name given by the Guarani to the Ache, who are hunter-gatherers of Paraguay. Um, and the name Goyaki means rabid rats. Um, horticulturalists typically don't view hunter-gatherers much better than any other civilized or agrarian person would. Um, so the name is a, a slam. 
And I had a bunch of quotes that I was reading off the website in that episode to show how they were trying to greenwash all this shit and trying to say, you know, oh, the name is, is all these things and it means all this stuff. But they they chose a name that was a, a massive diss to these people because then it was an intellectual property. Um, and also because I'm sure it sounded better and nobody wants to drink Ache, which is has a little inflection on the E. Um, otherwise, it's ache yerba mate. And uh, I guess it just isn't going to sell as well. It probably won't pull as well in the numbers when they're doing their research and development. Um, so, you know, they wanted something that sounded exotic. Uh, and they wanted to make it seem like they were doing all this good shit. Uh, and they don't. It is fucked. Uh, it's really a lot of bullshit. And as I go on at length in that episode, just looking through the website itself showed a lot of information about it. And so when I did this, I think people thought it was like, Oh, I wasn't aware of this massive campaign. It's like, this, this is just stuff I found, um, in, in doing the research for this book and just in, in general being aware of it. Uh, there, there isn't a massive boycott campaign and I had, I wasn't sure how to respond to that even. Um, I, I don't drink your mate anymore. I don't buy it anymore. Uh, and you know, in general, I have my feelings about boycotts. I've, I've committed to them for a very long time. Uh, but every, everything you buy is fucked. Uh, some things are just more fucked than others. Um, I have a long history with Ogoni people, um, from Nigeria and spending years standing on corners, um, protesting shell, uh, for the murder of Kensar Wiwa and eight other people, and then the exile of, you know, at the time in the St. Louis, hundreds of people in the early 90s from Ogoni land uh, because of Shell's paramilitary police and because of, you know, policies that were going on there. It's not like any oil company is good, and I've, I've you know, I've fought them all, uh, continue to and will continue to, but, I mean, there's just things that, you know, I don't, I don't know. It's not that hard to explain. I know these people that have gone through this experience with Shell, I don't buy from Shell. I haven't bought from Shell for 25 years. I don't know. Um, but, I mean, I, I'm not trying to advocate that boycotting is going to solve that problem. Um, and I think that all these corporations do need to be continually called out for their bullshit. They need to be called out for everything that they're doing. And it needs to be pulled into the light, and that's important. And I would say that that is more important than just trying to say, it's like, well, which one's the best? Uh, the best is you don't spend money, but you know, we live in a world where living as a hunter gatherer, as much as people want to say, it's like, well, if you don't like it, fucking leave. Um, that's, it's not reality. And that if you look at what, what is happening with hunter gatherers, you can see it very, very real and very, very clearly hunting and gathering in these areas. Even in, you know, if you look at the Kalahari, uh, Bushman reserves, things are their entire image and visage is all over it. And if the actual hunting and gathering Bushmen try to hunt there, they are killed or imprisoned for being poachers. Uh, and then, you know, feel good liberals and leftists want to say, it's like, oh, we, we support these groups that have paramilitaries that kill poachers in these areas. It's like, well, you should probably target where that shit's going. And if there's no money feeding it, then that kind of shit won't happen. If a hunter gatherer is not going to get paid to poach, um, when they're in a colonial situation and they have no other option, then they won't do it. But for the most part, it is about subsistence hunting. Uh, and 
that's just what it comes down to. These ways of life are so fucking threatening to civilization and to the entire narrative that we are fed that the only option the civilizers see is to eliminate them. And that again is a major part of gods and country. But the idea that you can like be this enlightened little fucking asshole in civilization and you buy this energy drink that's got an exotic sounding name to it and that your, you know, your chi is really fucking centering it's opening your chakras or whatever. Uh, God, it's fucked. But should you target these companies? Should they be given shit? Yes. Am I calling for a boycott? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. I think they deserve a lot worse. And this is why. And I, I'm. it's really kind of fresh in my memory. It's really kind of fresh for me or fresher in a, in a way. Uh, I was just out in the Rockies and going through Denver seeing billboards for Goyaki brand or Ramate. Uh, and I'm going to get into this a little more in the of God's a country stuff that I'm going to read. Um, but I don't know if Goyaki brand listened to that episode. I know that they were made aware of it. Um, and I, again, I read extensively from their website. Uh, when I was going to finalize the, the writing that I'm going to be reading here in a moment, I went back to the website to pull those quotes again. And the website is 100% different. They fucking scrubbed all of it. There's not a mention of the Ache on here. Uh, they do have websites in other languages. It still has some of that stuff and you can still find some of it. You know, I'm not trying to say that I'm the reason for this or that this podcast is the reason for this, but I you know, I've worked for companies like Goyagi, people who are considered to be green and sustainable, blah, 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 all this bullshit. And this is easier for them to do. It's easier for them to just nix the entire message and try to nix the entire greenwashing bullshit and pretend it never happened uh, than it is to confront and address. Um, I wasn't able to find cash versions of the site. I, like I said, I was able to find... Uh, a lot of quotes that kind of backed it up and I'll get to some of those, but the new website is really infuriating to me. Uh, more so because it, it's so polished. It's so sterile. It's so just like you've discovered this thing and there's no context for it aside from the fact that we found a superfood and that's all you need to know. Um, and you could be a brand ambassador. Uh, they are called Amigos de Goyaki. Vomit-inducing, what is it, an inspiring group of creative folks. Goyaki's amigos range from photographers to surfers to environmental advocates and more. They are not only talented in their profession, but also give back to their communities and the planet. While there are many amigos, we've highlighted just a few here. Fucking, I don't know, die, what, I don't, I don't know what to say about this shit. Like it's, it's, this is exactly how these things work, and this is exactly how all these, these green feel good millennial bullshit kind of endeavors are, and it's just mostly smiling white kids going on adventures and flip flops and surfing and yoga. Uh, and that makes it all the worse because the Ache were victims of fucking genocide into the sixties and seventies. And it continued. Um, so I'm not very forgiving and I'm very fucking furious about this uh have i reached out to them have i done anything like that what would i say uh again i'm not a fucking pacifist at all 
and this enrages me violently. Uh, so I'm not going to have a discussion with them. Uh, I wish the worst on them, and I hope I, I hope that uh, this does continue to spread. I hope that people do draw more attention to it, and uh, don't give them a fucking inch. Um, there's there's no world in which this is okay. And so I'll read you a little bit more here just so you can get a feel for how they've columbus uh Yerumate, which, by the way, Yerumate was a major agricultural export, I believe starting in the 1700s alongside this fucking slave trade. It was picked by slaves. Uh, the the Guarani were enslaved. The Goyaki, I'm sorry, the Ache were enslaved. And hunter-gatherers just fucking wiped out of this entire region of going into... Um, the ports of Paraguay and Buenos Aires, uh, you know, down, down these rivers and just a major colonial export picked by indigenous people that live there, turned into slaves and imported slaves from Africa as well. It has a really fucking bloody and old history. Your mate is high in caffeine and it was used a lot around the same time that that coffee was being pushed onto the global market. So a bunch of fucking white kids from, I don't know, some probably fucking Boulder, Colorado or some shit um, acting like they found this thing and that it's the greatest thing that you could ever have. And so here's a little bit from their website. Reach deep into your Ramadi culture and you'll discover people have long gathered to imbibe mate to awaken the mind, perform extraordinary feats, and exchange confidences. Even Yari the mythical goddess of Mate decrees, it is the symbol of friendship. <sighs> like, did, did they write that with a fucking straight face? Ah, oh, God. We've always believed there was a magical tree in the rainforest with powers to unite and energize. Come to life with this high energy infusion brewed from the mighty emerald green Mate leaves. Your Mate has the strength of coffee, the health benefits of tea, and the euphoria of chocolate, all in one beverage. Of the six commonly used stimulants in the world, coffee, tea, cola, coca, and guarana, Yerba Mate triumphs as the most balanced and healthful while it stimulates. Brewed from the naturally caffeinated and nourishing leaves of the species of holly native to the South American Atlantic rainforests, it contains 24 vitamins and minerals, 15 amino acids, and an abundant polyphenols. Remarkably, the Pasteur Institute and the Paris Scientific Society concluded in 1964 that, quote, it is difficult to find a plant in any area of the world equal to mate in nutritional value, end quote, and that your mate contains, quote, practically all the vitamins and it's necessary to sustain life, end quote. And if you go down, you can watch a video about your mate come to life, some kids around a campfire, looks real cool. Bulletproof mate latte, superfood smoothie with mate. Uh, fuck these people. Plain and simple. Whether or not I had anything to do with this site being so fucking scrubbed, um, I don't care. Fuck them. Uh, boycott them. I, I can think of them much worse. Uh, but, yeah, fuck these people. And, I mean, the entire – the thing is is that why why not just target this company? Why, why not make a thing? Because the entire – thing is so fucking connected the ayahuasca shamans the yerba mate and any other superfood and right now uh, a thing that's getting a lot of attention and rightfully so is white sage uh, 
which is being harvested massively over harvested and completely unethical and traditional ways. Um, so people can use it to, to smudge and, uh, and to, you know, be hip or whatever. They can live their van life and Instagram the fuck out of it and burn some sage in their pictures and feel like they've, they've connected. They can drink the Yerba Mate and think they fucking discovered something that wasn't a major part of an industrial global slave economy. Um, but that's just not fucking reality. That's not reality. The entirety of everything that is consumed is this fucking bloody. And the more people try to cover it up and try to make it look like it's fucking safe and okay, it's horrible. It's fucking wretched and it needs to be drawn to the light. So target Goyaki, target capitalism, target everything, target civilization, make it your fucking enemy. Know what it is, know who it is, and don't go through life thinking that because you have some kind of enlightenment or because you have some knowledge of the shit that it makes any of it okay. Uh, and again, I mean, I have I have my own thresholds, uh, and I, it's not like I think that coffee is better than Goyaki or or Mate in general. And the sad reality is, is that Goyaki brand or Mate is probably much better, more ethical in a lot of ways than any other kind of Yerba Mate you can buy. And there are many, they didn't discover this. Um, but yeah, it fucking pisses me off. And the fact that they could just delete it, they just thought they could get all this shit out of here and then be okay. Like the better answer wasn't to try and justify it. Wasn't to try and stand their ground. Wasn't to try and say all these things that we're doing for the Ache or good and great as their old sites did say, but to just fucking delete it. It's, it's the worst thing they could have done. Uh, and it's fucking cowardly, um, pathetic and it's fucking bullshit. Um, so I don't know. Again, uh, I'm going to read a bit of guys in country. I'm going to pause for a second so I can, uh, compose myself first. So before I get started on this reading, I think it's a, a good time to have a slight intermission here. Um, to get into a topic that I, I think it's going to be, it's, it's kind of a subtext for a whole lot of my work. And it's been touched on a bit, particularly in, in the essay hooked on a feeling, uh, and society without a st- society without strangers, which is also in uh, my new book gathered remains. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's come up a lot. I think with people I've talked to uh, about the podcast and potentially become more aware of some of the stuff because of the podcast, because of the work I do, um, uh, that's probably pretty obvious. Like, you know, I get, uh, angry often and <laughs> passionate about what I believe in. Um, and you know, the very question about depression, uh, and anger and rage and what you do with it and what, what you can do with it. And, you know, all this kind of hippie shit where people say it's like, this is, this can't be the starting point for something good. Um, uh, and, uh, I've gotten better at relying on people and I have a, a close group of people that I'm able to talk to a lot about this stuff, but I, I see stuff like, um, and I think I mentioned before, Will Potter recently, who's a, a friend of mine, a journalist who wrote a book, Green is the New Red. I, I talked extensively about um, depression and activism uh, and things like that and uh, kind of trauma and the impacts it has in your life of, of steeping yourself in, in trauma, uh, and really facing a lot of these things head on. And he's a lot braver than I am. Um, 
and I think it's it's worth watching that, and it can be painful. Uh, but you know, there there is a deeper question here that that is kind of an underlying premise of all this stuff, and it's complicated. Um, and it's I, I find it exceptionally hard to talk about, and I find it exceptionally hard to articulate um, from a from a certain level or a certain uh, level of critique and everything like that. It's, it's all pretty obvious if you remove the social animal from the social context and from the wild context and you make them an individual, you make them an ego and you set them out against the world. They're going to fucking break. And that's how domestication works. There's you know, 8 billion people on this planet or whatever. And it's 8 billion people are broken 8 billion ways. Um, and all of us are looking for validation. Uh, and that's what domesticators and civilizers try to sell back to us is this feeling that's like, Oh, you're special. And you deserve this thing or you deserve to feel this way as long as you look at it as, as what you do and what you are supposed to be doing. Um, and uh, there's there's going to be more, I think, in Black Greener's review number six. Uh, Bud Yank, who's um, been on the podcast before and in uh, some part of Black and Green Review as well, uh, talking about a recent experience she had when she was in Norway with the Sami. Uh, and the Sami, like any other indigenous society, have exceptionally high suicide rates. Uh, they've had the same kind of patterns that everybody else, the, almost every other indigenous society has, where being executed, put it onto reservations, put into residential school processes and thrown about and having, having their culture just taken from them and their mean of, means of existence thrown into a cash economy and all the consequences that come alongside that. Uh, they have exceptionally high suicide rates. Uh, and that is very fucking sadly not abnormal at all for indigenous societies. Um, just generations removed, even relatively recently, or living history, living memory of living either their ancestral life or living it in in the face of of colonization. Uh, and there's a book I like to recommend also, often called uh, "In the Days of Victoria." I believe Eve Ball wrote it. It's the story of an Apache warrior uh, who grew up during the Apache Wars, um, particularly seeing it or like you know, Crickneg uh, and. Uh, Victorio and Lozen. And it, it's an important book to me and it taught me a lot because it's like, here's this kid who was growing up. He had to be shushed so that uh, colonizing soldiers couldn't hear him when he was hiding uh, and things like that. But there's so much still that he knows about that culture. He was thoroughly Apache in this era of colonization and warfare. Uh, still had his culture, still had all this knowledge. And I, I think that's amazing. Uh, and it shows a lot of resilience and it shows what we are capable of as a social animal versus the, just the bleakness that modernity sells us. Um, but it's something to be constantly reminded of. And, it, and I've been uh, an anarchist for 25 years now. Uh, and in, let's say 95 getting really into deep ecology 97 starting to get into ecofeminism and really questioning through Carolyn Merchant, Susan Griffin, the nature of agriculture and then, uh, anarcho-primitivism, uh, and the work of John Zerzan and, and Freddie Perlman and everybody else and Paul Shepard since, um, and, I, I know a lot of people who have been in activism and have been in all these things and they get burnt out. 
the passion kind of dies because it becomes a, a job of sorts. Um, and uh, it becomes easier to escape and fall into activist circles or anarchist circles or whatever. Um, and just, you know, let's just dig in on the words. Let's just dig in on this shit. Let's get into trolling and just spin fight, whatever about all these various things, pretend like the actual consequences of it don't necessarily matter. And the anarchist world is as full of trolls as anything else in, in existence right now, uh, potentially worse in a lot of ways. And it's one reason why I, I, I don't feel as much connection with it. And I also don't feel that my audience is, is necessarily anarchist. And I'm not telling people that they should be getting into this stuff or looking into all that shit and trying to figure it out. But the state of the world is fucked. And I, I know that a lot of people want to listen to podcasts or want to listen to things to, to have some degree of entertainment, to have some degree of kind of feeling good and walking away feeling more complete because of this stuff and to have this experience. And I, I don't offer that. Um, and it is hard work. Uh, and it's hard to do and it's hard to really jump into and be involved with. Uh, and I'm not, you know, like I said, I'm not going to get into it fully here, but the there's two sides of this coin, and it's it's critique and praxis. Um, there's no point in any of this stuff if you're not actually planning on trying to do something with it or trying to understand it as anything more than philosophy or anything more than ideals. Uh, and that's complicated because it means that there is a wild world that still exists. There's a wild aspect of you. This primal anarchy still exists within you and resist domestication. It has always resisted domestication and will always resist domestication, whether or not you're cognizant of it and whether or not you're acting on it. Uh, but you can still see it. All the things that made this world great and beautiful still exist and they are under attack. And that that's where these things get hard. And that's where these things get really complicated is you're faced with both the beauty of the world and the tools to, to immerse yourself more in it at the same time that you see, understand, and begin to feel the crushing impact that civilization has on it. And the things that we do to this world are fucking awful. And the things we do to other people and other animals and everything else, it's, it's fucked. I mean, it's insane. So at no point do I think it's, it's like a, if you're engaged in this, if you're actively involved in it, not just like the arguments or the semantics or whatever, there's no point where that stops being painful. There's no point where it stops being depressing. In fact, I think it just gets worse. Um, and it's hard to deal with, but at the same time, I, I don't think there's another way. I don't think that there's any way you can confront this without dealing with that. And the only thing is to, to, to ground yourself in the context, uh, in the work and it just makes it harder. So, yeah, uh, I, I at some point, I think I'll go into more detail on that, and I think it deserves it, uh, but now's not the time. Um, but I just felt the need to interject that uh, before I do this reading. So uh, I'm going to do a bit of a reading now from Of Gods and Country, my book in the works. Again, this is not fully edited or anything, so there could be things that change. Um, before I read this section on the Aceh, and I have read a, a little bit more before about the Aceh, I believe, 
Uh, and I've certainly talked about it a good bit in earlier episodes and I don't remember which, but I do know that the episode eight, um, goes into the Guayaki or Mate. So there's, there's a bit there, but there's a, a couple of references I make in this. So I'm going to give a little context here. Um, one, I mentioned a quote about Charles Dickens, a reference to Charles Dickens. If I didn't read this other brief part here, then it wouldn't make any sense at all. Uh, so this is from a little earlier section. I'm just going to read this quick and then I'll get back to some of the other characters like I mentioned, and then I will do the reading. Okay. Over 300 years after the first missionary encountered the Bushmen, wide-eyed and unknowingly, unknowingly about to fail miserably, and this was still the single message, cease hunting and gathering or desist existence. The problem is that the rest of the world had already made up its mind. The world's oldest culture had been paraded around in a victory lap of the colonizers. The frontier mentality and free-for-all that the 19th century had wrought carried forth a bevy of settler artifacts. It was encouraged to kill Bushmen. The vestiges, vestiges of that bloodlust were soon to be found molding in the collections of museums around South Africa, Namibia, and Europe with grotesque bounty. The trophy Bushmen heads, skulls, flayed skins, hands, and scalps. As was the norm at the time, the relics weren't just remains, but living artifacts on display. The goal was to display the Hobbesian world of the filthy conquered remainders of the, or our own social and biological evolution, a mirror for the civilized to see a reflection of everything that they were taught to hate about themselves, a litmus test for conditioning, a test many, if not most, passed all too easily. Charles Dickens saw one of these exhibits in London in the 1850s and had no problem recording his own vile and visceral reaction. Quote, Think of the Bushmen. Think of the two men and the two women who have been exhibited in England for some years. Are the majority of persons who remember that horrid little leader of that party and his festering bundle of hides with his filth and his antipathy, antipathy for, to war and his straddled legs and his odious eyes shaded by a brutal hand and his cry of Kuraanan, Bushmen for something desperately insulting, I have no doubt. Conscious of the affectionate yearning towards that noble savage, or is it idiosyncratic of me to abhor, detest, abominate, and abjure him? I think it would have been justifiable homicide to slay him. I have never seen that group smoking, sleeping, or expectorating around their brazier, but I have sincerely wished that something might happen to the charcoal smoldering therein, which would cause the suffocation of the whole of these noble strangers. End quote. Real quote. Uh, in an obituary for Dickens, who died in eighteen, uh, who died at age fifty-eight in eighteen seventy of a stroke, it was written that he was a quote sympathizer with the poor, the suffering, and the oppressed. End quote. Like a true philanthropist, history has a way of forgiving a shit personality so long as they paid their tithe to the gears of the progress, even while he was readily fe feasting on those the machine had consumed. Hubris is always a fatal condition, but it's an unfortunately slow death. And kind of goes on, so I'm going to skip ahead here and return to the Ache. Uh, so this is the end of the third chapter called um, Sending Forth. And uh, the characters I mentioned, uh, Jim Stoles was a missionary for uh, New Tribe's mission. Um, he was given the, uh, the Ache Reserve uh, it was put under his control from uh, Perriera, who was a 
or may or may not have been an actual colonel in the actual military, might have just been a deputized cowboy, uh, but he was a primary slave catcher and he was responsible for the Ache Reserve prior to it being handed over to Stoles. Um, so a whole fucked up history, and I get the whole thing in the book. But uh, basically, Perrier went from being the main guy uh, who was capturing and slaving all the Ache, uh, turning them into subjects, to a private slave owner himself who was catching Ache to bring to the reserve so that uh, Jim Stoles could say that he had more people living on there and make the private investors feel good about themselves or whatever to pretend that he was actually involved in helping them. But Mr. and Mrs. Stoles uh, were awful fucking people. Um, and uh, I touch on that a little bit in this, but there's there's obviously a lot more to it. So as a little context, uh, aside from that, uh, there's an anthropologist, Mark Munzel, and the journalist Norman Lewis. And the journalist Norman Lewis wrote a book called Missionaries, uh, which is really important reading. Um, but uh, Lewis and Munzel were responsible for bringing the genocide of the Aceh to light, particularly when both cases, the role of the missionaries as it was handed over from uh, Perriera on behalf of the state to uh, Jim Stoll's into tribe missions. Uh, so, yeah, that's the background. Hopefully the rest of this, or that's enough to explain the rest of this. All right, so this is from the last section here. Because of the work of Norman Lewis and Mark Munzel, the genocide of the Aceh received some audience. There were conferences, books, reports. Official letters were mailed, articles published. There was, for a moment, a splash on the consciousness of the world at large. Or at least there was the to those willing to pay attention. Few could deny that something truly awful had happened here. It was documented, and its aftermath spoke volumes of what horrors had gone on. But there was a catch, a constant one that was kind of an academic or intellectual sanitizer, that attention quickly turned from the details of what had happened to who was at fault. More appropriately, who was not at fault. <laughs> Immediately that turned from the perpetrators to the victims or unruly encounters with them. Something awful had happened here, but it was most definitely not on us. Quote, the State Department's official line had always been that the Ache were victims of only harsh individual acts by isolated ranchers and ranch hands said to have been drunk. End quote. In the pages of the official reports, the presence and use of state military trucks was raced. Oil companies were never mentioned. New tribes' missions had their hands washed of it. The Summer Institute of Linguistics used their liberation from guilt to point the finger at smoke and mirrors. The decimation of the Aceh was at the hands of the international communist conspiracy, controlled, as it were, by Satan himself lurking in the shadows. Had Satan existed to materialize among the Aceh, he probably would have looked far more like Stoles or Perriera, those are the ones responsible for turning this region into a living hell. But the reason for these universal and diverse efforts to wash their hands of the murder and enslavement of the Aceh, again, at this point, down to no more than 30 people at their lowest, were lost in unapologetic agents of the state. Following the lead of Colonel Infazan, there was the Paraguayan Minister of Defense, General Marcial San Menagio. Stressner had slid control of the nefarious Indian Affairs Department into the Ministry of Defense's court already. Sentimentalio didn't seem out of place. In a government-controlled by, uh, in a government-controlled publication, Sentimentalio was quoted as follows: "Quote: 
Although there are victims and victimizers, there is no third element necessary to establish the crime of genocide, that is intent. Therefore, as there is no intent, one cannot speak of genocide. Unquote. No intent to destroy. Yes, it happened. But that was, in the mouth of the state, incidental. I'll give you a moment to let that digest. As social animals, we have needs. We have stories. We have community. The life of the nomadic hunter-gatherer is built around the resilience, reciprocity, and intently undefined sense of moralistic universality. The world of the hunter-gatherer is alive. It is breathing. It can give, and it can take. For the Ache, that sense of sharing and belonging was so prevalent that even the foods that they did get from the missions were shared. To me, it's simple things like this that can sting the hardest. There's so much beauty in this world. It doesn't need to be perfect. It doesn't need to be free of moments of blunt violence that subsistence can bring. But its balance lies in the flow of life, not individual in, in individuals or in individual moments. Here, we can tell stories. We can laugh and cry together. We can bond and we can move on. Situations lack a permanence of demand, and that opens up a continuity of flex and stability through movement and shifting. It isn't a perfect world, but it is a pretty damn marvelous one, and it is our stories that bind us to it. They exist to help us find our place, to find our rhythm when things fall apart, and to find each other when they don't. They guide, they center, they ground, or at least they did. This is the ugly truth. We still tell stories, and they still serve some of the same roles in our lives. But here, they don't guide. They prescribe. Instead of centering, they remind us of a role within a cosmic hierarchy reflected in an earthly chain of command. Instead of grounding us in our place, we become rooted in a placeless artificial system, one that crosses continents, expands over oceans, and launches into the sky. We no longer tell stories to belong. We are told stories that dictate our place in the world. In this story, the Ache are left to die in the end, and we are left to feel resolved of them. To paraphrase Miss Stoll's, they are in hell now. To paraphrase a state, they were collateral damage. For the parts of the world that heard this story at all, that was good enough. They were This was all they needed to hear. It was a tragedy. Thoughts and prayers, better luck next time. Our stories can be beautiful things, but when the context shifts, our stories can become weapons. And in this case... The way the story is told matters greatly. It can shift blame or it can absorb it. We can learn from it or we can throw the Ache into the dustbin of history and we carry on with our lives. The story we have been led to believe is that what happened to the Ache wasn't genocide. It absolutely was. We can call it by a number of names to varying degrees. I have as well. Ethnocide, culture side, linguicide. There's an entire field of specialists focused solely on the term genocide and what its technical application is fitting. As two of these scholars, Robert Gilladly and Ben Kiernan, have put it, the modified terms are useless. Quote, the new terms do not solve the problem. Rather, they simply multiply it by either alighting distinct concepts or limiting analysis of mass murders and other kinds of abuses to the specific historical context. End quote. There is simply no context in which the planned and articulated destruction of a peoples and their cultures is merely incidental. There's a fear among these scholars that the terms become meaningless through overuse. The terms, it seems, are far more of concern than the reality of genocide. If the technicality of what constitutes genocide is simply a matter of intent, then it can vanish with a lie, or an unarticulated impulse, or nothing short of the colonizers just not giving a fuck about what or who it was they were killing. We have an endless number of stories about the frontier, 
about the point of civilization where the intersection of a wild world is met with the force and technology of a culture that needs it to be dead matter that it can parasitize so that the core civilization can continue undisrupted, feasting upon agricultural goods harvested by slaves and forced laborers in stolen and conquered lands, grazed on former forests, fortified with, fortified with the corpses of once vast and intact communities of wild trees, and fueled by the long dead bodies in a timeless world, having long ago returned to the earth from whence they came. We cannot overuse terms if we cannot understand why we have them in the first place. If we cannot comprehend what it was that we are doing to this world, what it is that we are doing to this world. The core of these societies, the victims of articulated plans of elimination and expansion, is rooted in the practice and immersion of being of this earth. It is who they are. It is who we are. But for not forgetting that, we punish them. Like Dickens, we looked into the mirror and we wanted to see our reflection burn. Unlike Dickens, civilization actually laid the tinder and lit the match. They had no place in the story we are told, so they had to go. And in that story, we let it happen. Missionaries became the heroes. They rode in on Cessnas. They intervened. They sought to salvage the savage and turn them into, in, them into us. More appropriately, we were willing to keep them around to feed us so that they too shared in our heavenly misery. We were willing to forgive the perpetuators, the ones who sat on the sidelines, the ones who took part by forgetting any of it ever happened. But the missionary, just like the settlers and colonizers, knew exactly what it was they were doing. They didn't just seek to undermine and destroy the culture. They sought to destroy it. That's how you get someone like Stoles, who did so with such infective indifference as to be equally willing to take part in the slaughter itself and to view his role as a test of his own godly character. It wasn't just a mission. It was his mission. God might not exist to forgive or condemn his actions and his role in the plan and plotted elimination of the Ache and their culture, but government seemed perfectly fine with it. Jack Kubish, the Assistant Secretary of Inter-American Affairs, was sent to follow up on the claims that Munzel and Lewis had brought forth. The story the government was told was simply good enough for the official United States response. Quote, We do not believe that there has been a planned or conscious effort on the part of the government of Paraguay to exterminate, molest, or harm the Ache Indians in any way. The unfortunate acts in a remote area seem to have been individual ones. End quote. The insanity of the situation isn't just a isn't a question of whether or not the label of genocide is technically fitting, just because of some weak clause in academic discovered. It's that this happens so much and so often that we will tell ourselves anything we can to discuss the terms instead of the reality. Genocide is an innate part of civilization. There is no core without an ever-growing periphery. You have no power structure without an elaborate and spawning network built solely to feed its perpetual expansion. Whoever stands in the way physically and stands to be destroyed, enslaved, or assimilated into Leviathan, but if all the end results are the same, why should we pretend otherwise? No matter how you cut it, the simple, that simple fact remains. The Aceh population dropped roughly 30 individuals, an entire culture nearly vanquished and not for a lack of brutal attempts to do exactly that. Every politician, missionary, or settler involved is directly responsible for that genocide. The rest of the world eating off the back of this growing beast is complicit as well. At the very least, that means that our decision to remove the reality of genocide from the living history of it is absolutely wrong. While Stoles and Pereira should not have been forgiven or being forgotten by history, there are other players as well. Among the voices to dismiss the call of genocide are two of the least forgivable, the anthropologist Kim Hill and Magdalena Hurtado. 
Hill and Tertado both have credits and respect in the anthropological world, particularly in the realm of hunter-gatherer studies. Their ethnography, Aceh life history, is a hefty source of information on the Aceh, and they are no strangers to representing them. The pendulum of representation, however, swings both ways. In Aceh life history, there is perhaps the worst justification given for why the Aceh case should be, shouldn't be considered genocide, is worth citing at length. Quote, in summary, the situation in the 20th century was one of small-scale war between the Aceh and invading peasants. We've heard similar reports of homicide and child capture among every other native group with whom we have worked in South America. This was a classic case of conquest, but not a case of genocide, and certainly not a unique case that deserved to be singled out among all the unfortunate histories of South American Indians. It should be described with the context of the slow conquest of the Americas that has been going on for more than 500 years. Perhaps the entire process could be labeled genocide, given the all-too-frequent extermination of small tribal populations, but the Aceh themselves were not the subjects of a policy of genocide. All the governments of North and South America have been involved in gross violations of indigenous rights and a long-term trend of displacing native peoples from their traditional land. All these governments deserve to be condemned equally. Certainly nothing about the Aceh situation provides a moral impetus for singling out Paraguay uniquely as being involved in genocide, nor is there any moral justification for equating the Aceh history to that of the Jews during the Second World War. Such loose analogies simply dilute the significance of the horror of actual genocide when it is observed. End quote. In short, if the genocide of indigenous societies at the hand of colonizing expansionists weren't universally genocide, then the Aceh wouldn't be subjects of it. The thing is, I agree, but for different reasons. There's nothing about loose analogies here. The degree and sophistication by which a colonial empire conducts its dirty work on the frontier is innately different from how it would conduct itself in the 21st, 20th century Europe and against other Europeans. The Holocaust was not unique because of its locale and targets. Genocide. The Holocaust was unique because of its locale and targets. Genocide, however, was not. Long before the first Nazi furnace was lit, the mechanisms of complete extermination were at work. In ecological time, perhaps those mechanisms were not very far behind the origin of the plow, but they were always in its wake. This is how civilizations function. This is their cost. This is their reality. The spreading tumor of colonization was a palate cleanser, and the field test for the technologies of obliteration that were put on display first in World War I and then again in World War II. The techniques the Nazis deployed were honed against hunters and pastoralists in Africa at first. This isn't analogous to genocide. This is genocide. The blueprint roadmap for the Holocaust lie in the mass graves of indigenous societies mowed down with precision and often without even contempt, just cold, sterile, and lifeless efficiency. Hill and Hurtado were right about one thing. The Ache were more the rule than the exemption. But in what world should the uniqueness of extermination be the justification for what did or didn't happen? Hill and Hurtado found what they were looking for in terms of justifications for the same reason the missionaries and other heads of state had. They too were in on it. They too were complicit. Because in that ethnography, the goal was to state, not show, that the official story was correct. Individual acts of decimation. If you step back for a second, the pattern is pretty damn clear. If every little ragtag cluster of settlers is doing the exact same thing, and that leads to the nearly complete extermination of a people, a fate lived out on reservations crafted by the state and then managed by missionaries, it's pretty fucking hard to see that this was a set of coincidences. This is the problem with structural oppression and violence. In the microcosm, 
they can be set aside. We can cut the threads between and say that the fact that all these people had just happened to treat hunter-gatherers and other indigenous societies the exact same way and with the exact same drive and determination to execute and enslave them is just a nasty situation. But also, that is a number of isolated ones. Coincidences this big aren't coincidental. And we have the documentation. We have the report on the ground. We have the evidence and even the goddamn politicians weren't willing to really cover their tracks. From handing off the young girls stolen from their decimated world to other politicians as sex slaves to government officials claiming, on the record, that the decimation had occurred but they didn't mean it. So why is it so easy for Hill and Hurtado to feel the way that they have to feel that they have any reason to set the record supposedly straight and with such despicably weak reason? It wasn't unique enough for them. Hill was the first of the pair to arrive on the ground amongst the Aceh, but that was in 1978, and he was there with the Peace Corps. By that time, Lewis and Munzel had brought what they had personally seen back to the world stage, documented and verifiable. Richard Arnes' Genocide of Paraguay, a book both Lewis and Munzel played heavily in, was the case against the Paraguayan government and its strong-arm ruler, Strassner. That book came out in 1976. That's two years prior to Hill even setting foot in the forest. History can do a great many things. What can be uncovered is fantastic at times. What is shifted in narratives can be absolutely horrifying. Hindsight can give new eyes and insights to old situations. Is it possible that Hill and Hurtado had come back into the, after the smoke had cleared and found some new truth? Yes, it is possible. But it is exceptionally unlikely. And in this case... It's simply another colonial lie. Hill had arrived on the scene as a volunteer for the Peace Corps. Genocide in Paraguay was the book that drew him into the area in the first place. But when he would come back professionally as an anthropologist, it was under the guise and direction of David Mayberry Lewis of the group Cultural Survival. Through and through, Cultural Survival is a liberal group, one that, it would seem, ultimately means well. They actively have opposed the campaigns of genocide, but they suffer from com- common liberal delusion that there can be a middle ground between the world of the indigenous societies and the global market. In accepting the basic premise of civilization, that expansion and incorporation is inevitable, they set the deck, ensuring that as indigenous societies are taken out by industry, that they have an active role in the documenting and recording of that culture. So instead of being lost, it is turned into data sets as its members are turned into laborers. And here, we return to the familiar, the anthropologist in the guise of liberal, liberal conquistador, a missionary by any other name. The work that can be done here is often indecipherable from the work of New Tribes Missions or Summer Institute of Linguistics. We are here to translate and transcribe, to weigh and measure, to record and document. It misses the point that the sheer presence in this world, particularly in the settlement structure, is meant to assure that when assimilation, assimilation does happen, and it is their goal and mission that it does, that is favorable to the global market, so it can be, uh, as it can be for those who would submit to the enlightened sacrifice to the pulpit of economics. Missionaries speak of God. Liberals speak of economy. I can't pretend that one is intrinsically better or even different in practice than the other. To the point, they simply aren't. They both serve the same impulse. They just have a slightly different ring to their stories. Ultimately, they're one and the same. In many ways, Kim exhibits that fact. Among the Aceh, he has helped to attempt to organize their labor towards supposedly fair trade economics. At face value, it looks pretty good. 
In fact, it looks like Kim is taking part personally in improving what can be an awful predatory situation and turning into a slightly better one. Like many missionaries before him, the case for a more gentle gentle variation of contact and influx into a global economy seems comparatively like a huge improvement from the more barefaced versions of colonialism. That, however, works only so long as we accept the colonial reality and that inclusion in that global market is the only option left for those otherwise displaced or exterminated from it. And again, the Ache are the case in point. Kim is instrumental in programs such as the QDV Indigenous Reserve. QDV was meant, was meant to be managed by the Ache and predominantly serve one primary economic goal, the sustainable growth of Yerba Mate, the very, very colonial export that had helped put the ports of Buenos Aires on the map in the first place, hundreds of years earlier. Only this time, it was hip. The company that bought Yerba Mate, Goyaki. Goyaki brand Yerba Mate is an archetype for subcultural phenomena, a superfood story if there ever was one. American kids discover something they consider revolutionary, and they need the world to try it, attaining some form of health and or mental awakening in the process. This gave the young owners a seemingly great goal that Cuvetti fit into easily. Quote, steward and restore 200,000 acres of rainforest and create 1,000 living wage jobs by 2020. End quote. Steward, living wage. All the right words to sell a feel-good superfood product. How could this not be or become a fair trade icon? They want to offer a new baseline in regenerative agriculture, biodegradable packaging, and solar power production. They want to show that they are giving the Aceh a leg up, some agency in their own lives, but it is nothing but a backhanded reprise of colonial circumstances. On the Goyaki company site, they used to have a lot more details spelled out about what that all that looked like. I took to the air and railed on their math versus their mythos on my podcast. Subsequently, the entire site was completely reworked and the Aceh have been rescrubbed from every bit of it. Well, almost every bit of it. They forgot to update their Spanish language site, at least for now. That site not only proclaims that, quote, the name of the Goyaki brand pays tribute to the Aceh Goyaki indigenous people, end quote, but they talk about working directly with the Aceh in a revolutionary project and share thanks with Kim and Magdalena quite lavishly. But for the English-speaking world, their target audience, including the Amigos de Gayaki, their brand ambassadors, all that remains of the Ache is the most obvious, the company's name, Guayaki. So what does that fair trade really look like? The company has previously upheld the role for giving over two to three times the market price for your mate that they purchase. Mind you, as a company that sells bottled your mate and dried your mate leaves, this is or should be their single largest expense for the end product itself. Yet for all the bold claims about paying more and being fair trade, as of 2018, the website had put the figure of the annual purchases between $2,500 and $7,500 each year. In addition, there's a fund for supposed support of the Ache that equates to $5,000 per year, much of which goes to the salary of a full-time project manager and their part-time assistant. For every $10 million in sales, the goal was to give 1% or 0.1% of the revenue back to the Ache. Let's run the numbers. So for purchasing your mate, the Ache laborers are getting a total of seven and a half to twelve and a half thousand annually. That is labor, wages, and all the products, not including all costs for growing, harvesting, and sorting. Pretty dismal. But it gets worse. In 2008, Goyaki had 11.8 million in sales, and in 2014, they had grown to 27 million. That's an exceptional margin. So let's add that 0.1% back in. 
In 2008, it would have been $11,800, and in 2014, $27,000. Now, is that better than the outshade I've been making before? Yes, but there is no pretense nor even acknowledgement on behalf of the customers buying Aramate on the global market that was a crucial part of the colonial expansion into the region, which hastened the complete decimation and then meagerly slavish wage for the work harvesting in the very same regions where free forests once yield a free, fulfilling, and profoundly egalitarian way of life had since ceased to be, at best, wage slavery. And keep in mind that the Ache, even in their missions, never stopped being among the most aggressively egalitarian shares of food amongst each other, extending beyond the demand sharing of other hunter-gatherers towards even the far, even the far more simply gathered plant foods. There's no world in which the supposedly corporate generosity exists outside of the colonial bubble, and at the very least is directly in the colonial shadow. It only sounds good because the alternative is complete genocide. But the kicker is one more, one more piece of since-deleted information, the name. Remember that the label Goyaki is an insult. It was granted by the warring and expanding Guarani neighbors, and it means rabid rats. This is an homage. It's, barely avoided li- it's a barely avoided liability. As the since-removed site proudly proclaimed, international law would consider the name, say, Goyaki as intellectual property if only the Ache wanted anything to do with the term. In other words, they felt compelled to state, quote, we or any other corporation are not legally bound to license the use of their name. This is, end quote, this is malicious orientalism. It is the abject notion of having white Americans scramble to the edges of the earth to discover a supposed miracle, one held deeply by a native society, and then released into the hands of wisdom to share with the world. Never mind that Yeramate was a major cash crop for the region for hundreds of years. This was meant to be different, unique, discovered. Goyaki, the brand and its products, was meant to encapsulate an era, a legacy. This was meant to honor the fallen, but the fallen are still alive. They aren't well, they're wage slaves. The use of an insulting name is meant to remind them of their place. It is the terms dictated the stories that Goyaki, the corporation, spins. And that absolutely should not stand. The irony of the entire situation is too great to be missed. After everything that surviving Ache have lived through, it is the smiling face of excited first-world cons- customers shopping for superfoods at health food stores, and the liberal groups like Sur- Cultural Survival that grease those wheels, that have ultimately won the cause extraordinaire of the missionaries and government settlement plans all along the way. They wanted to settle the nomads. They wanted to turn the hunters into farmers. They wanted to sell the mythos of a sustainable, happy capitalism, aluminum can by aluminum can. They want to present their work as regenerative, but it is the epitome of degenerative. They actually didn't ask to be farmers. They refused it. They were killed by farmers. They were killed because they didn't just accept their fate like the Kim Stoles of Perriera had on their behalf. Those three might be radically different in their impacts, but let's not kid ourselves. This is the same story that repeats over and over again. If hunter-gatherers won't just die already, the least they can do for civilization is to tend the farm. That's the approach here. And with very little wavering, that's been the approach from the very start. So are we supposed to be thankful that now they're just paid a little more? That we should feel content about having our little blast of Paraguayan exoticism in our energizing drink? There are many paths and many stories that get us to where we are currently, some far more bloody than others. But the trajectory remains the same. I am intent upon dragging the work of the missionaries into the light, largely because they act 
their active involvement in genocide and forced settlements is rampantly overlooked, even as it currently exists. Yet the entirety of civilization has all these layers built into it. The degrees of severity might shift, but the persistence is steadfast. The better we feel about how our lives overlap, the more apparent it is that we neither understand nor are meant to care from a capitalist perspective what it actually takes to get that year of mate in your cup in the morning. It's like any other product in that regard, but, like genocide, it doesn't negate its consequences. What it means is that if you dig into the past or present, present of any product, you'll likely keep pulling blood-stained roots out of the earth. Not being the worst is never a justification. It is not a pos- our position to compri- compromise on behalf of hunter-gatherers. It also shouldn't be our place to have to defend them either. It should simply be the case that if our way of life can't continue without impeding and destroying the community of egalitarian peoples of, across the world, that it is our problem to sort, not theirs. They knew, they knew Urban Mate was great. They just didn't think that their way of life and home was worth destroying to tell you that. But apparently Kim needs to hear it. As of 2015, he was making waves for trying to force the contact of an uncontacted society, Mashko Piru of Peru. He was one of the two anthropologists to state, quote, a well-designed contact can be quite safe, end quote. Can it? How? When? Why? As the group Survival International responded in an open letter to Hill and his cohort, quote, the anthropologists claim that uncontacted tribes are unviable, but this dangerous myth plays into the hands of those who wish to invade and exploit tribal people's ancestral homelands, end quote. Hill isn't presenting reasons. He's presenting justifications. It's the same it has always been, and it is the side, and it is the side of the short-term colonizing interest that gets the benefit of the doubt, not the culture that predated it and potentially could outlive it. It is vital that we reiterate a point here. Religion and nationalism aren't the reason why cultures spread. They aren't what makes us start war- they aren't what makes us start wars. But as a storytelling animal, those narratives are what gets us to the front lines of those wars. Yet in believing the power of the story told to us by those in power, we can all too easily believe that the potential for choice, the potential for the will of hunter-gatherers to remain free and egalitarian, for forests to remain intact, for oceans to remain teeming with life, and for grasslands and savannas to have enough wild populations on them to continue the former and necessary healthy balance achieved for ages, are all but gone. We can give in. We can give up. We can be like Dickens. We can look not only at a reflection in the face and wish it would burn, but we can look at another empathetic, empathic social animal, another wild being in the face and wish the same without respite, often without remorse, and sadly, usually without retaliation. But these are the stories we are told. They are the lullabies of colonizing and technocratic civilization, constantly pushing itself to the brink of its own collapse while acting out in a fit of over the terror it dares not acknowledge. This is our reality. This is our narrative. And this too shall pass. It is my hope, my wish, and my struggle that the Aceh and all other indigenous societies don't pass with it. So that, again, is a bit from my book in progress, of Gods and Country. Uh, and uh, we'll be talking more about that in future episodes. I'm kind of tempted to talk about it more a bit now, but uh, we're past an hour and a half here. So I'm going to close up this episode uh, again uh, thank you for listening and supporting, talking about this, whatever else uh, you you do. Um, and uh, just one last time, uh, if you want to call in, 
uh, questions for future episodes, 573-575-8752. You can also email blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. That's blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. Uh, or if you want to send a letter, you can send it to Black and Green, P.O. Box 402, Salem, Missouri, M.O., 65560. Again, that is P.O. Box 402, Salem, Missouri, 65560. Uh, if you if you like what I have to do, what I'm saying, you check out the websites, uh, blackandgreenpress.org, blackandgreenreview.org, or my personal one, kevintucker.org. Uh, and if you are able to, if you support via Patreon or PayPal, very thankful. Uh, and, um, yeah. So, uh, try not to put so long between these episodes, but, uh, hopefully have some updates as well for black and green review number six sooner than later. Uh, and, uh, yeah, again, the archive for past episodes, black and And there's a tab on the podcast there, uh, that has all the episodes. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again soon. Thanks. Bye. It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast.